the word of men, but is it what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, I know it's kind of off there a little bit. I was I usually like some here, usually when they're reading. But Caleb said, I want the podium. And I wasn't going to move Caleb, so I thought, <laughs> you can have it, brother. So, um, hey, let's pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide this time as we enter into the Word. Lord Jesus, thank you for the reading of your Scripture and in doing so, exalting your truth. Acknowledging that, Lord, you are the authority, and we sit under your authority. And we pray that we would model that through our passion to understand what you say about yourself, about this world that you've created, about us, uh, your image bearers. Pray your Holy Spirit would use this time to exalt Christ, to make the gospel clear, to uh, build passion in your people, to fight the fight of faith, to awaken the hearts of unbelievers, to receive you, Lord. And would you fill me with your spirit to lead and serve in a way that honors you and not myself. Uh, we love you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, yeah, family, so we are in 1 Thessalonians, as you know. Um, we go through books of the Bible. We are in the latter stages of uh, chapter 2. Uh, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians throughout, uh, the, throughout this year, uh, ending in our t- time of Advent. Uh, hope you have been encouraged so far. Wonderful book as as we get to see, uh, basically, what does it mean uh, to, uh, to pour your life out? What does it mean to, uh, to as it were, uh, go down swinging? Like, how do we live a life uh, worthy of the manner of the calling that God has given us in Christ Jesus? Uh, we see that not only modeled through this, um, it was cool how it's modeled, because that's basically what, 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 what Paul is showing us. Uh, but in doing so, he's showing us that uh, by pleading and helping these individuals understand um, who they are and what they've done. Uh, just to give you a quick snapshot, we're talking about a persecuted church that you can find in Acts, the book of Acts, which is another book in the Bible, uh, in Acts chapter 17 specifically, uh, where Paul has gone to preach the gospel with Silas and Timothy. He's teaching uh, the word of God. Uh, there become, there's, there's Jewish and also Gentile uh, in, you know, dissenters who are not liking what's happening. Uh, it gets violent. The people that actually love Paul and are liking what's going on, in addition uh, to his, uh, his disciples and even himself, uh, get dragged out. Uh, I'm sure there was physical, physical violence. We know there was physical violence toward Paul and his, and his, and his disciples and are asked or, or, or claimed to be able to leave Thessalonica. Uh, and this happens in about three weeks, three weeks to a month, where you're preaching the gospel, people start hearing it, people are enjoying what they're learning about Jesus, the scales fall, people start pursuing Christ, all of a sudden, these guys say, no, what's going on here? This guy's you know, t- turning this world upside down, gets beat up, goes off, and now he writes this letter because he cares about these individuals. He wants to make sure that they're fighting a fight. He wants to make sure that they are encouraged to no matter what happens to them, even if they die, that they'll be willing to stand firm in the faith. And also he was concerned. He just really didn't know. And it says that, you, we'll see that in, in, in chapter 3, he's kind of like, that's why I sent 
you know, Timothy to you because I was kind of concerned. I didn't know, like, how you guys were really doing. And so um, I couldn't go, so I kind of sent these, these other, this other individual, and, I'm, and I want you to know, like, I love you so much. And so we have a, a, a letter here that is really showing us a pastor's heart, a pastoral heart here of, like, what does it look like to love people, uh, to just long to see Christ exalted in people's lives. And in doing so, seeing that whenever that's happening, when we see it, so this pastoral heart, that is it for us, you know, as we want to know what the takeaways are, is first to see that from the perspective of a first century Jew, like what that would look like, and hopefully that would build in your, our hearts. I've given you a few tidbits that I want us to really have a heart for the persecuted church, right? I hope it builds a heart like, wow, people actually go through this. Like people actually get killed or beat up because you tell them that you're not God and Jesus is. Um, but also, we want, it's, it's pedagogical, right? There is a, a didactic component to this. There's a, a teaching re- component to what Paul is doing. Is He's not just modeling this stuff because he is a nice guy. He's trying to help us understand that this is also, mo- he's modeling this because he's like, this is how we need to be. This is how he wants them to, to actually be as well. He wants them to do these things and be this way. As we, so I think about the natural inclination there for all of us is that's why this is absolutely applicable. It's not just, oh, this is a pastoral letter. He's encouraging them. He's encouraging them. Hopefully that's encouraging you, but also it's also a, a call, an exhortation. Like, do I have that kind of heart for people? Am I that self-sacrificial? <laughs> right? Am I that passionate about proclaiming the good news? To ask ourselves and be assessing that. But also, I, I keep saying each week that I, I want us to see that spiritual component in this letter. Continue to see how things are happening. People are growing because of the Lord. That there is, the, there's, there is an awareness that we can see throughout the text where the Holy Spirit's presence, just that power of God, things that can't be taught, things that can't just be proclaimed, things that you can't just do well, that God is doing in people that we can't explain so that we would be aware of the power of the Holy Spirit and how he needs to work in us and in people for God's purposes to be accomplished. So those are the things I want you to keep thinking about because this text here is simply a continuation of what we've been going through uh, in Thessalonians chapter 2. So we're continually saying keep those in your, in your thoughts as we look at this text right here. In fact, uh, let me turn, if you look at uh, verse 12, turn my Bible to verse 12, open up your Bibles and look at verse 12. It's not part of this text, so it won't be on the screen. So you're going to have to open up your Bibles for that. But I want you to see verse 12 of chapter 2, it reads, I love this. Look, look, look how he says this. Well, he says in verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children, right, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged, and look how, look how many times he says this, we exhorted each one of you, right, and encouraged you and charged you <laughs> to walk in a manner worthy of God. You think he, you think he wants them to know something about <laughs> walking in a manner worthy of God? Who does that? Like, Man, we told you, I, want, I charged you, I, we, we did all this because we want you to walk with the Lord. And I'm proposing here, he's continuing on from that. This is kind of the stuff, what we're going to be looking at right now, that allows that verse, actually, or even like verse 3, 2 in chapter 1, to kind of come alive. So, let's get right in the word here. Verse 13. It says, so this is Paul again. He's, he's encouraging these individuals. He's, he's wanting them to, uh, to continue to feel like, man, okay, I am a Christian. God has done something powerfully in me. Paul does love me. I, by God's grace, filled with the Spirit, man, God can truly complete the work he's, he's begun in me. It says, and we also thank God constantly for this, the scriptures read. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. He's continually making a statement back and forth, back and forth that, hey, you can trust me. I'm legit. You know I'm legit. Oh, and also you can trust what God has done in you. You can trust that you have experienced true life change in Christ. 
And he says, here's, here's another example of this concept of awareness of the Spirit. I love what he does here. He says, wait a minute, you received the word, right? And I'm thanking God for that. And I love what he says here. You accepted it not as a word of man, which, which the implication is that I can preach to you, right, actually things about God, and you can accept them either as the word of man or as a word of God. And it seems like there's a supernatural component here again that he's saying God did something, that the, whole, the Holy Spirit did something that when you heard the Bible preach, when, when he talked about who God is and future grace and all this stuff, they weren't just like, one ear and out the other, right? Oh, it's just another church service. But that stuff spoke to them. And they were like, whoa, this is good stuff. That something happened where it was different. It was the word of God. And, he's, and he says that because he's saying that's actually an implication. All these character traits that I'm talking about of what you've done, of enduring persecution. Again, remember, these individuals had to stay there. They kicked Paul out, but guess what? These individuals had to live there and still say, the guy that you kicked out that you wanted to kill because of what he was talking about, we actually believe that stuff, and we're going to continue to worship here. Just imagine that. They had to continue to do that. And he says those reasons are why we know that, man, that God's word supernaturally was doing something in you. That after three weeks or a month or so, you would be willing to experience that kind of ridicule. And this letter starts again with this uh, kind of thanksgiving. He's thanking them. There's three times he does this. He does this in, in chapter 1 in verses 2 through 5. He does this in chapter 2 here and also in chapter 3, verse 9 through 13, where he starts off by, by just thanking them. Again, showing that, that issue of relationship. So he just says, hey, there's a supernatural reality that we see. And he goes in verse 14, for you, brothers, we see you accepted as a word of, of God. Well, how do we know you accepted as a word of God and not just, you know, pithy sayings or just people being smart? For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things, verse 14, from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. You see that there, family? So, so he says, I know because you became imitators. But what's interesting to me in this text here is imitators of who? Right? Well, how did he know he became imitators? I'll say of the Lord, but also he talks about the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So how do you become imitators? It's usually when you talk about imitators, you hear people imitating Paul, or imitating the Lord. It's just very interesting that he, he's focused his imitation piece on the church of Judea. So why does he do this? What is he talking about? How did, how did, they, how did they imitate that church for, for him to say, this is, this is one of the reasons why I know that you get what it means to walk with God, that you're serious, because of suffering. The way they imitated this church is through suffering, right? In Acts chapter 6, you can write that address down, verse 8, to, 8 through 14. You see uh, different examples in Acts chapter 12, in 21, basically in a nutshell, imagine this. Jesus Christ dies on the cross. The, the, the disciples run all over the place, right? They go back fishing. All of a sudden, Jesus rises from the dead. He starts to reveal himself to, to the disciples until over 500 people, the scripture says, right? And, and they, get all to, they get into a room, and, and they're scared, but they're like, what's going on? Jesus gives them the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, People start preaching the gospel here and there. Uh, and the scripture says uh, that they, they start hanging out, right? People come to faith. They started hanging out. But then it says that the church began to get persecuted, right? That's what happened, right? The church began to get persecuted. And I propose to you that we would always say persecution is a friend of the church because we know through the church getting persecuted, it was getting kind of happy. You know how we are. We like each other and stuff, and then you, you almost don't want to grow because you're like, I don't want all these new people. I just like the, my friends here, right? Maybe they weren't saying that, but for whatever reason, they were getting very comfortable. They preached the gospel. People were getting saved, but then they got kind of comfortable. Well, all of a sudden, the church gets persecuted. People spread out, and the gospel goes forth, Right? But the persecution was happening there. And so what you had is you had, you had persecution happening on two fronts. You had persecution happening from, from the Jews who, who thought they were a cult. Because who are you talking about? Because the Jews wanted to continue to remain Jewish. 
They, they did not, they, they thought, no, this is, we're, we're Jewish people. We're serious about being Jewish. We just are saying that the Messiah is found in Jesus Christ. But to a, a first century Jew, it was like you were in a cult. No, what are, you, what are you talking about this Jesus figure? And also to the Romans, there was, you, were, you were causing a threat upon, upon the government. So there was no way you could really hide. You couldn't identify as a Jewish person because the Jews kind of kicked you out and said you're a cult. You couldn't identify with the Romans because the Romans says you're trying to overtake the, the land. So they were experienced like extreme affliction and persecution. That was the history. So why does, he, why does he mention that? You kind of see why he mentioned that family? You kind of see it now. Because he's trying to make it clear that basically, guess what? I'm going to give you a few things. First, he wants the Thessalonians to understand that I want you to see that what you're experiencing right now, that affliction, you're, you're right in line with what happened with the, in Judea. And guess what? Persecution, affliction, as a young Christian, imagine you're three weeks in a game, or probably a couple months in a game. He wants to provide a theological, important, doctrinal stance here. Don't miss this. Young Christians, I love this. He says, persecution, as it were, is the norm, not the exception. That's the first thing he wants them to get. That's, that's why he's telling them this so early in the game. You just think if you want someone to really be encouraged in their faith, and they're young in their faith, you really want to spur them on, you don't say, hey, we love this, what's going on with you. It's just like everybody else. This is, this is what it means to be a Christian. That's, that's what he tells them. He doesn't tell them, man, you know, maybe you're not praying enough. Maybe you don't have enough faith to not have this stuff happening to you. He says, this is happening to you just like the other Christians who started the church. You see that? They need to understand it's not the, the, the exception. It is the norm. Look what the scriptures say in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. I'm going to read it to you. You can turn there, too. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, he's talking to, he's, there's another pastoral letter encouraging Timothy, his young, young, young disciple, as he's leading the local body. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Verse 11, my persecutions, my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Right? So he talks about the persecution. He keeps on. Listen to what he says here in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Have you ever just paused? Many of us have read that text, right? Have you just paused to think about what he's saying there? He is saying, if you really, you know, so, okay, you become a Christian, we all want to be passionate for Jesus. We want to live a godly life. We want to say no to the things of Satan, yes to the things of God, experience God's grace, experience God's Holy Spirit power, see Christ exalted, people come, come to Jesus, experience freedom from sin, experience, experience freedom from strongholds, experience freedom from anxiety, be able to walk through life and in our work and know there's a sovereign God controlling everything. We want to experience that. We want to experience a godly life filled with the Holy Spirit, power just to seeing God move. We want to all experience that. We want to be godly people. The Bible just told us, if you want to be a godly man or woman, you will be persecuted. It is absolutely part of the job description. Is that, is that bad exegesis? Absolutely not. I could take you, I didn't want to bore, I could take you to so many verses that talk about this framework of persecution and suffering being being part of what it means to actually retell the story of Jesus Christ. Look at that. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He just makes two camps here. I won't even get into why he says deceiving and being deceived. I'll wait till we, we actually study the book of 2 Timothy. But Here's, what, here's why this is important for these guys to hear, guys. Because it's very important for us as believers to understand that the world, the world will not tolerate people who are standing for righteousness. They won't tolerate it. 
And so you and I need to know that when you choose Christ and you say, I want to be a righteous man or woman, I want to pursue God, I want, to, I want God to be exalted in and through me, you are saying that you're going to stand for something that the world absolutely hates. And that means that the world is going to come after you, the lies of Satan are going to come after you, the flesh is going to be upon you. And so he's trying to tell these guys, he says, hey, you're imitators just like these other believers. Look at another thing he's trying to help them understand. As he goes on, you'll see this in, in, in further in the text. He says that everything is kind of to destined from God. That this is important for him to, to make, a, again, that, that, that moment that as you, as you and I walk with the Lord, I think it's very important as a Christian that you do not, do not thwart, do not minimize the spiritual component of our Christianity. Do not minimize that, that otherworldliness that you and I can't see. That in the conversation always has to be that reality. And that's why he said, hey, you're getting beat up because when, you, when you're experiencing all that turmoil, if you're really out there and people are like judging you or misunderstanding you or, you know, just havoc is breaking up, loose in your life. It's very important to understand that God is sovereign. I don't know about you, but many days I'm able to get through the day because I'm like, God is sovereign. Okay, that happened, and that really hurt, Lord. That seemed really unfair. Okay, what's my doctrine of sovereignty here? Did God know that happened? Is God loving and just? Is he in control of all this? You know, what's... You, you, you thought there was a certain professorship, all of a sudden that whole thing went crazy, all of a sudden you went over here, you had to know that God was sovereign. See, you thought you were going to get a job and all of a sudden a person calls you in and some people even told you, you're going to get this job. And they work in a company and then you come and you sit at the desk and they're like, sorry, you know what, we, we decided we're just going to kind of move forward with some other people. What happened? So there's something here that as he... he he wants them, again, Again, that's embedded. That's embedded in, his, in Paul's theology, that there's a sovereign God working all this, that he's not just saying, oh, you're going to get persecuted and evil's going to win. His point is, in that persecution, I want you to remember who's on the throne and who's controlling things. That's going to allow you to be able to go, okay, I can be courageous. Right? So understand that it's not the exception, it's the norm, that everything is destined from God, family, that the work of the enemy is in the sovereign control of a savior. See, he, and where do you get that from? Because, think about it. <clears throat> so now he's made it clear that the church of Judea was persecuted, just like they're persecuted, but guess what? Did the gospel go forth in Judea? Is the church, was the church dead in Judea? Absolutely not. They looked at that and thought, oh, so what is God saying? Just like Satan couldn't defeat the church in Judea, he cannot defeat you. You see that? He said, I got this. They were getting persecuted with more extreme and before you, and the gospel grew. This is what he wants to put in their hearts. This is, they're reading that, and they're getting encouraged. Like, oh, man, did you, yeah, I forgot you. Those guys, I heard about that. Paul mentioned that once or twice. Another thing he wants them to realize out of this text in that, in that pericope I propose is that he wants, them to, he wants to remind them that you're, you're part of something larger, right? You're part of a godly line. You're part of a, something bigger than yourselves. See, it's, it's, it's hard when you feel like you're the only person going through something. And I want to I marry that with, I would say, number four. Not only are you part of something bigger, but that whatever you're going through and whatever you will go through and whatever turmoil or persecution that you will experience, guess what? It's also common. It's not just that other people, it's not just, hey, you're part of a, a community of people who are going through that as well, which is very important, but also your thing is not specific to yourself. And I tell you, one of the tricks of Satan is that I see it all the time as I counsel you guys, is everybody thinks they're the only one going through their thing. We do, right? If you really pause, you, you, you don't understand. We do, now, we're famous, this is separate. We're famous, you know, I, I, with, with that with babies, right? This is, this is an example. So there's a lot, of wisdom, a lot of wisdom here, a lot of kids, right? We're a very procreative church, okay? And so 
But whenever, when I know, it's just so funny, when we have babies, and this is a normal thing what we do with kids, it's because you're a parent, I get it. But it's funny to me how whenever you're a parent, and I did it too, by the way, me and Sarah, probably me more than Sarah, I had, when we had the boys, we were in Cincinnati, and we had some godly families. And for some reason, I just felt like, I hear what you're saying, when, we, when our boys are like, like, you know, a couple weeks old, they'll tell us something about breastfeeding or whatever. I remember just, I remember um, Valerie. I remember Valerie, oh, and she's a doctor, she's a pediatrician, <laughs> and has four kids, super godly, husband's the elder of our church, where I was a pastoring. And I remember they would just give me insight. And I remember I would just kind of say it. Now, you know, you can, you can, I mean, you, we're godly people, so you know how to say it in a way that doesn't sound too evil, you know. And so uh, I, I, I use a language, good language, but I kind of was like, like, I hear you, Valerie. But like, you just don't know about my kid. You know, you don't know what we're doing. You know, like, my kid actually has 10 fingers. <laughs> you know? You know what I'm saying? Like, like it, was, it was crazy. And, I, and, I, and I, I say that because that's just how we are as people. We think like, oh, no, no, no. I hear what you're saying, but you don't know. This is my, you don't know. I, it's a special thing, and I want to propose to you. No. People have been having babies for years. In the same way, persecution, your issue, your sin struggle. People have been struggling with your sin struggle for thousands of years. You're not alone. And people have been suffering for the gospel for thousands of years. You're not alone. Finally, he wants us to realize that this battle is cosmic, you know? He wants you to, again, he wants not to make it so, I propose to you, it's not a small, another trick of Satan is for you to think it's just a small story, right? That this thing is kind of like, well, you just do your job and go to work. And if he can minimize your narrative, Right, and not show you how epic it is, it just makes you kind of just kind of a fatalist. You just kind of go through life and you just get bumped off through loneliness. Does that make sense? Uh, there was a movie, uh, not a movie, it's a TV show that, that, that went crazy season three, but I loved it when it first came out. It's called Heroes. I don't know if you've ever seen this, it was, a, it was like a show called Heroes. And me and Sarah, we just loved it for some of the first, re- first season. We thought we'd try it out. We thought it looked kind of corny. Man, we got so hooked. We love heroes, right? And one of the premise of this, this book, the story, is that you have these people who are kind of discovering that they got these powers, you know? And in addition to having these powers, like one guy has this comic book, and literally it kind of takes you through like, like the story that's happening in the world, right? It's like our Bible, you know what I'm saying? And it takes you through the story in the world so they can literally see. And it's, it was just interesting to me how the whole point of it is almost like, the whole point of this, and these are probably some unbelievers, was that these, these, these seemingly insignificant people all around the world were actually really significant that people are really significant and things that are happening in your insignificance that together we are doing, that, that there is a significance, right? And that your story is part of a, a bigger story that's cosmic and huge and that's, that things are happening. That was just unbelievers talking about superpowers and like knocking people off chairs and stuff, right? Whereas God is wanting us to understand that the cosmos is way bigger than us and that God is doing something in the heavenlies and Satan is trying to destroy and kill and, and, and lie and cheat and that the people of God are standing firm and are fighting the fight of faith and the kingdom is pushing fast and hard and that he's using the people of God and he's using prayers as, as incense so he can, his power can be unleashed on the people of God and his Holy Spirit is in the people of God so that things can happen that are supernatural that they can't even explain so that God will be exalted and that, he's, that there's a bigger story and it's not about just you just hanging out watching the Lions game today. It's not about just the frivolous things that we think, man, yeah, Monday was Monday. I propose to you your persecution, the things that are happening in your life. Pause and consider that, wow, there's a bigger story. There's a bigger story. Um, there's a... You guys might have heard of this guy. I don't, I don't have his name. I might have, um, if I can remember, I'm going to have uh, Nabil Koreshi. I think it's said. Thank you. Nabil Koreshi um, died a week and a half ago, 34 years old, uh, was, a, was a staunch Muslim. And um, me and Sarah, we just read his whole story last night. I wish we had time to, powerful story. And the reason I know, we, we, we heard of him because a few of my friends ministered with him. 
few of my friends from seminary. And this dude became a Christian. It took him years. I mean, him and some, they just went through years. I mean, a long time of apologetics and, and all this stuff to figure out, like, what, what did it mean to really love Jesus Christ? Because he, he was a serious Muslim. But he one day saw somebody who just happened to read their Bible in public and was like, oh, that's cool. I don't see that much. I wonder why this guy's reading the Bible in public. And it got him asking questions and questions, you know, more questions. And then after years, he becomes a Christian. Eventually, he becomes a Christian apologetic, apologist. Um, and he wrote, has some awesome books, and that, that information you'll see in the story. Um, but I bring him up because, um, you know, this guy begins to fight a fight of faith. People get saved. Uh, God has raised his, his level, like he's ministering, and people are getting saved. And then uh, last, uh, last year, he uh, finds out he has stage four uh, stomach cancer. Uh, and basically inoperable. They try to do something to spread it through his chest, and he died within a year. 34 years old. 34, which is humbling. I'm 41, you know? And I guess I bring that up because in the, in the eyes of the world, you know, you're thinking, well, man, here's a guy who, who's preaching the gospel, people getting saved. I mean, he's like bringing people from the Muslim faith, and God is using him. But God saw it in his sovereignty to allow him to die, right? And I'm proposing, we go, man, what, what, that's a weird plan, but it seems there's something bigger. God has, see, we don't know what's going on and how God is going to use that for his glory. We don't know how God used use that time between the 30, him being, you know, uh, the guy, the apologist who was trying to figure this out to now. We just don't know. But what we do know is that God in his sovereign plan saved this dude used him drastically and radically and then saw it fit to end his life very early for his glory. And I look at him and I just thought to myself, man, I, I want to have a life. I, I was watching his YouTubes and stuff and watching how every day it was about preaching the gospel and teaching people about who he is and who, who he is now in Christ. And I thought, Man, I want my life, I want to make sure my life is like, I'm not living a lull life, that, that every day I'm pouring it out for Jesus Christ, because I realize that this is a cosmic battle, it's bigger than myself. He says, um, verse 15, who killed both, so he's, he's continuing on to make sure I can... Verse 14 says, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. You see what he does there? He, he just shows his disdain for people who are what? Hindering the gospel. Look, look, look how he says it here. Killed the prophets, killed Jesus, displeased God, Oppose all mankind. What do you mean? The word is literally like a per- persecuted out, right? That's a whole, this whole concept of persecuting. And what does he mean here? I'm proposing that his, his, his thoughts, when he talks about opposing mankind, he's simply saying that people who, who keep the gospel from other people are actually people who hate mankind. They hate people. His point is that, th- 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 this, and I, I think we can see this in the next verse, his point is that you, for a person to, to try to block the gospel message, he's saying, man, God has his wrath upon him. And that's what he continues on and says in verse 16, by hindering, this is why, here's the proof there, you're opposing mankind. How? By hindering, verse 16, us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. And so what he's saying here, he's saying that you're constantly hindering me. That's the concept here. Uh, Being a hindrance. That a person who's not just uh, saying they disagree, but they're they're, they're desiring, they're content, they want, they desire to to dismantle. They, They want to dismantle Paul's ministry. And I love it here Notice what he's doing here. He's talking to these individuals. He's saying, hey, they, they did this to me. Uh, they, they didn't want me to, to speak the good news of Christ. He's saying, I'm in line, just like with the, the, uh, those in Judea. I was persecuted. They're persecuted. You're persecuted. But guess what? Verse 16, that guess what? The wrath of God is going to come upon them. 
And I want to propose to you, this is called a prophetic heiress, if, you, if you're into grammar, which is like, when, 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 a, when the first century you heard this, it was almost like uh, he was saying um, a term that, that literally already happened. And it, has, it hasn't happened, but it's, it's, so, it's so good as done because God is going to do it. It's almost like it already happened. And you ask, well, why is he saying this? Why is he telling them that, man, those guys are going to get it one day? Because I propose to you, if we keep it real, that any bitter taste that's in your mouth from any wrongdoing is almost bearable when you know that God's justice will be done. When you know that, okay, God's going to take care of this. And so he's letting them know, you can be okay. You can, you can be ridiculed. You can stand out for Christ and understand that God is going to take care of it, is his point. And then he, then, he, then he brings it back, and I told you, over and over, he goes, he talks about exhorting them and who they are and what they're doing, and he talks about his heart, his heart for them. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. The word here, family, you guys will get this, um, it's orphaniso, right, where you get orphan. His point is that, you know what? It's this picture, this word picture he wants to give them, like, like a, of a mom or dad. You imagine you're with your baby and someone just, like, takes your baby away from you? Like, literally rips them out of your arms? It's that picture that he's trying to give to these guys. This is how he felt when he, when he couldn't return, when he, when he had to leave these guys. This is the kind of heart he had for these people. And so he, he's saying this because he, obviously I would propose that the implication is that there's probably some discussion of like, man, well, I know, Paul, you love us. You, you care for us. You, you want us to walk with the Lord. Well, why, why haven't you ever come? Why you didn't come back, man? And he's saying here, I really, really, really desire to come back. I wanted to be with you. I was torn away from you. So concept, he uses this word. It's like a great desire. It's the only few words uh, in the New Testament where where there's a good use of the word lust. This is a word they use for lust in the Bible. And it's only one of the few places where it's used in a good way. He said, no, I really, really wanted to be with you. Do you know how bad I wanted to see you? And I was just thinking, you know, he's talking to these individuals. This is a pastoral heart. And I'm like, man, Lord, I want to have this heart. But I'm realizing, again, if it's didactic, my prayer is for all of us to have that kind of heart for each other. That we would, just, we would, we would love each other. We would want to be, be with each other, care for each other. That when people are gone, that we would miss each other. Uh, that we would have that kind of passion that we see here. That when, when Paul wasn't seeing them face to face, man, his, uh, they were just clear and dear to his heart. Man, at the most part, I just would say that, man, this lets me know from implication, man, that the church is relational, you know. He continues on in verse 18, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. See, how he says this, but Satan hindered us. Here we go again. He, he mentioned Satan. Now, what's interesting, again, he doesn't explain Satan. He was with those guys for a few weeks. He, doesn't, he mentions Satan, doesn't explain who he is. I'm proposing. This is very important for us to get. It seems to me that although he probably didn't exalt and lift Satan up in a light that's, that's inappropriate and ungodly, I think it's very, there's a cool assumption that he taught on the doctrine of Satan. He taught about Satan. That when he said Satan, they was like, mm-hmm. Because keep in mind, he's talking to Greeks and Jews. Okay, so although a Jew might have some kind of acumen here, Greek people weren't thinking about Satan. Now, why, do I, why do I bring that up? Just, just, I bring it up as a, as a local body because I think as a local community in churches, what we can do, we can either talk about Satan too much or we can like never talk about Satan, right? I'm just going to be very clear that there's Satan, as, as, as Tony Evans would say, he's not... Uh, a dude with a red jumpsuit and a pitchfork, right? That, that he is real. That, that he, is, he desires to destroy us, to thwart God's plans. He's a liar. And he seems right here, Paul, 
has, has at some level helped them understand that you are battling against things that you cannot see. You are battling against evil spirits, and Satan is uh, out here to divide and kill and destroy us, and that we need to be aware of his schemes as we move forward in Christ. In fact, this whole word hindered that you see here, but Satan hindered us, is kind of a, the word that's used like when, when an army would take over a land, they would go over a road, and then what they would do so that uh, individuals couldn't also come and help, they would actually destroy the road so you couldn't get into the camp to actually help bring supplies or help bring a rescue. So they would cut the roads to pieces so another army couldn't cross. It's like that the picture of what Satan was trying to do, that he was trying to literally just chop off the road so that Paul could, could have these guys on an island. But yet, even in his hindrance, we see over and over that God is glorified. Right? Think about it. Think about that. Satan trying, and this is, again, that sovereignty piece, thinking about the Holy Spirit. So, so Satan thinks, oh, I did it. We kicked Paul out. We kicked Silas out. We kicked Timothy out. We got the head honchos out. Oh, man, we got them all by themselves. They're going to get defeated. Man, they're going to be sad. Oh, man, they're going to be right back into their pagan ways real soon. It's only been three weeks. That's not enough time to put doctrine in people. And yet the scriptures say that other lands became Christians and heard about their works because of what was going on in that. that in fact, the persecution brought out rumors to other lands to say, man, I want that guy that they're telling this Jesus figure must be real. Amazing. Think about that. That's what, so what Satan meant for evil, those aren't just pithy sayings that happens throughout the Bible. And guess what? If you pause long enough, the reason why we do these prayer times, if you pause long enough, you see it happen in your own life. That there's been times in your life, Satan did things meant for evil. Things happen in your life. And you're like, man, this is going to be horrible. Man, this is going to destroy everything. And you're like, what in the world? Why is this happening? And then all of a sudden, Three years go by and you see, and you go, oh my, and, and guess what? Things don't even have to be rosy, but you look back and go, I see God through all that. I see how God was protecting me, even though I did that dumb thing. I see how God was loving me, even though I'm the one who was committing evil right there. And I guess what, guess what? Satan probably was like, God, why do you keep dealing with this dude? Look, at he just did that again, just off him. Right? And yet you get to see, like, God is like, no, because in four years, he is going to worship me. He's going to realize I was gracious even when he was faithless. You see it all over. So here's Satan thinking, oh, this is going to be great. This is perfect. Young believers in isolation, perfect. And yet the gospel goes forth even further. So Satan, um, indeed, Try to hinder them, but it backfired. Verse 19, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? See that? So he's saying, hey, guess what, guys? So, I mean, man, we, we just don't, don't believe the hype. We, we, I do love you. I have tried to come. Satan tried to, to hinder us. Do you not understand how important you are? You know, do you not, hope, do you not understand that people walking with God for Paul that was, it's interesting, when we talk about our, our hope, our joy, usually it's, it's Jesus. It's interesting, he says that they are his hope and his joy. Right? That's an interesting term. And I, I propose to you, there's a couple of things he's trying to, to teach here. First, that basically people walking with Jesus Christ for Paul was like, it was, it, it, was, it was hope in a sense. What the meaning is, it was hope in a sense like, oh, I didn't waste my life. Oh, it was worth it because I get to see these people who are reflecting God's image. I get to see people walking and pursuing Christ. It was hope that it was, as it, as it were, it was worth it, people walking with Jesus Christ. And I want to just, if I can just say in verse 19, there's a couple of things we got to make sure that we digest. And that is first, that there's a beautiful thing and there's a, the, the weight of reward is okay according to scriptures, which means it's okay to be excited about the reward you will get from Jesus Christ because of your faithfulness. Okay. That that actually, it shouldn't be the apex of your motivation, but it's absolutely appropriate, even 1 Corinthians 3, that one of your motivations is that, man, one day the Lord is going to say, wow, well done, good and faithful servant, and that you're excited about that day. That you're excited about what the Lord, how the Lord is going to be like, man, you're faithful. 
It's, it, the picture is of, a, you know, the Olympics where I, you know, I, can't, I can't imagine this myself. I'm not, I've never been a D1 athlete or a serious athlete. But can you imagine you work hard, you train hard, you get to the point where you're one of the best in the world, and then you know you have this moment where it's all going to go down. and The match goes well. You know, you, this is what you train for. And finally, you put in the work, you've, you, you've, you put in the toil, man, and you win. And now, I, it's like when I, as I read the Bible, I get it, that moment where they get to stand up on that podium and they get to that time just to kind of reflect and digest. And I'm like, I get why people crying and stuff up there. All that toil. And it was like, man, wow. Now, what's interesting is that is I'm a retelling of what God has given us, and that's fleeting. You, see, you know, you work all your life run on ice skates. You know what I'm saying? And all of a sudden, your triple lux, you know, you did it. Hey, you know? And you up there. I mean, I just think, what, what do you do without Jesus? You up there, and you, you're like, wow, I did it, I did it. You know? You get your medal. And now what? Right? You're retired, 26 or whatever. You know what I'm saying? What are you going to do now? You know, you're on, you know, you're on Disney cruises, ice skating, whatever. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? What do you do? I, you know, I say that on purpose because I love how God takes every scenario in our life and he makes it fleeting and dumb when you put your focus on it. When your hope's in it, it becomes dumb. It's cool if you're a professional ice skater and God gave you that gift and you used it and now you realize it's not your God. You realize, oh, that was just me. Like, I love when I, 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 watch, I watch runners who love Jesus, and they do marathons, and they, they, they see it as, as literally a recapitulation of the Christian life, which I propose, that's, why you should, that's what you should see. I propose in your vocation, that's what you should see, that when you work hard and you fight hard in your job, and you're teaching people about Jesus, and you're fighting a fight of faith, this ice skater, if you're, if you're in Christ, and you're, you're being awesome at ice skating so that it gives you a platform so that you can preach Christ, now I get when you go, man, I did all that, and now, man, it was worth, look at, look at the people coming to Christ, I got a platform, that's cool. But if you just did a ice gate, that's dumb. That's real dumb. <laughs> right? So, so I love, I love yeah, I love my, my friends, they, 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 they do these marathons, they're like, man, I was running, I was just thinking, man, I got to mile 20, I was like, oh, I'm so tired, it's, remind me of Jesus, he, just that man, the Lord's insecure, you know, and they, I'm like, wow, that's cool, it's, I, I didn't think of that, I'll never see that, because I ain't running a marathon, but that's cool that that happens to you, that lets me know, this is a cool, this is a cool narrative that God gives us. So the way to reward, family, remember that, that is a cool, it's a cool thing to desire for God to be pleased and so let's stop the Christian passivity toward that. Um, and then he says here, for you are our glory and joy. This emphatic impression, expression here. Um, I love this. this basic, man, just look at the love that Paul has, guys, so we can go home. Look at the love. And I want to pray uh, that we have that as a body. He says, you are my praise, my fame, in my honor. You see that? That their fame, that the, him seeing people love Christ, walk with God, begin to be aware of the good news of Christ. Like, like he lived that life where it was like when that happened, it's like, man, my life was worth it. And you see it because he poured his whole, whole life out for that. But here's the thing. It's not a guy just trying to teach us about what he did. It literally is him saying, this is supposed to be the plight of the Christian life. All he is is a representative of what we all should be doing, of what he's asking them to do. If it wasn't, right, he wouldn't be talking about this. You'll see this over. Be imitators of me. Right? His whole point is that all these things happen, and I want to encourage you that, that you're going to be like this because I'm seeing this work in you. And guess what? What do I want you to be like? Like this. That's what's happening in the book. You see that over and over again, back and forth. You know what's interesting as a pastor? Can I share with you something that was interesting to me as I looked at the passage? I thought, huh, you know, we, you, know you look how much, how, how much he loved those people, uh, how much he loves the people of God. And I thought, man, it's interesting to me. You see how, how tied that, that glory and that hope and that, uh, that joy is? It seems like really tied to those people. And I can relate to that because I thought to myself, man, you look at this and, 
And many times when we think of pastoral shepherding relationships, you know, we, we think about how a pastor can do great damage, which is absolutely true. Right? We think of that. We know that a pastor can do great damage to the people of God. Right? But man, you ever thought that a congregation can hurt a pastor? You think about the pastor's hope and joy is, me, I propose to you, it's wrapped up, at least in some part, to what you do, to the fruit. I'm proposing it to you as your pastor. It's not a um, guilt trip. This is real. And I see it here, that it mattered. He says it here, his joy, his hope is wrapped up in these guys. He says, you are my praise and my fame, my honor. So how do you live? Let me prove that. Well, I'll just continue on as we leave. So I love that all this is done for the glory of God. And you think, what, what are next steps? How, like, how do I apply this? I want to propose, man, this whole text is he's just saying, hey, I want you to walk in a manner worthy. He says, man, God is doing this work in you. You were experiencing this persecution, but I want you to take that and I want you to be the man and woman I've asked you to be. And what does that look like? I propose um, that we experience and we, we, we experience joy in it. That's that communal, that absolute, that common nature suffering first. That you and I should not, man, pray that the Holy Spirit allows you not to be a man or woman who tries to figure out the way they can suffer the least as a Christian. Because it's counter gospel. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches courageous heralding of the, the good news and then come what may. My prayer is that this week you will consider the sovereignty of God in the midst of satanic activity. As things are happening in our world, in your worlds, consider God is sovereign and holy. Uh, my brother had a, a crazy thing happen this week and yet... Those are moments where you got to think God is sovereign. God is holy, even in the midst of this pain and suffering. And then weight of reward. Consider, build a passion. Build a passion in your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit for you to, to build a passion to seek God's approval. In a sense, not that I'm saved or you like me now, but in a healthy sense of like, wow, I want to be a man who can say, man, before the Lord, I poured it out. Lord, I know you're pleased because I was faithful in how I ministered and how I cared for others. The weight of reward, that man, the reward is a, is a, is a beautiful thing that God is going to give us as we pour our lives out. Let's respond to him in worship through our time of tithe and offering and communion. <clears throat>